Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. The scripture this morning can be found from the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, and it's verses 1 through 6. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again. If you were trying to follow along on this service sheet, you may have had trouble finding Isaiah chapter 49 here. That's because it's not there. At uh, 7.14 this morning, I had a text from Barton saying, I'm sick, I can't come. And uh, so uh, we're in the archives this morning. In fact, as I was praying about it and checking through my archives of, of sermons in the past, I discovered a sermon uh, from two years ago which had at the top a service uh, on the second Sunday of Advent where we lit the candle of light and leading into communion. So I thought, well, that'll work for this morning. So I have blown the dust off this sermon. I would invite you to join me in prayer that God will now breathe his life into it. Father, we come... Uh, acknowledging that everything we have comes from you, that we are utterly and completely dependent upon you. And Lord, you know what we need to hear this morning. And so I ask, Holy Spirit of God, that you will come. You are the, the breath of God, and that you will breathe your life into your word, that you will bring it alive in our hearts as we continue to celebrate and to look forward to celebrating the first advent of Jesus into this world. And as we continue to remind ourselves to live in readiness, preparation, a state of preparedness for the second coming of Jesus. So be our teacher this morning. We come and we offer these thoughts to you. Guide our our conversation. May it be according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're in the habit of uh, taking some notes, you can, you can use that same piece of paper, but write three different questions on it. Here's three questions that will guide our conversation this morning on our observation of this amazing text from Isaiah chapter 49. The first question is this, what is the significance of Advent? It's kind of in the background leading up to the text. 
And then another question of background really is, who is the servant of the Lord? Because Isaiah 49 is one of what has become known as the great servant songs of the prophet Isaiah. And then finally, the third uh, question is really about observing this servant song. How does God work through his servant? How does God work through his servant. Let's take some time at the beginning just to say what is the significance of Advent and remind ourselves why we do this. This is the second Sunday of Advent, and we're reminding ourselves of the purpose of this season. Uh, we, we've already said that Advent means waiting, and that really the, the season of Advent is a season of anticipation and waiting. What are we waiting for? We're waiting, we're preparing to celebrate the birth of Jesus into our world. You might be asking, well, why do we make such a big deal out of this? Why do we take four whole Sundays before December 25th and talk about preparing to celebrate? Let me remind you that actually we do this quite a lot, that when a big event is coming up, we actually do take time to prepare to celebrate. And I might suggest the bigger the event the more we prepare. Let me give one example. Christmas 2013. Christmas 2013 for me was uh, a season of preparation. I was pastoring the church. It was my end of my first full year of pastoring in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, International Church of Bishkek. And so we were, it was a month of preparing to celebrate uh, Advent and the celebration of Christmas in, in that church, in that city. Uh, for me also, it was a pretty special year because there was a special event coming up on January the 4th, 2014, and that was to be my wedding to Martha. So you can imagine that December was a very busy month for me, and uh, it was a month of many, many, many preparations, not only for Advent, but also wedding preparations. And you can imagine the sense of anticipation that I had uh, through that whole month preparing to celebrate. Here's something that I think we sometimes lose sight of as Christmas comes around each year. There's so many things that go on around us each year that we can lose the sense of what we're actually celebrating. What we're about to celebrate on December 25th is an event which is so significant that it fundamentally changed the course of human history. Why do we call this year 2021? What happened 2,021 years ago, approximately, was the birth of Jesus. And most of the world now divides time into these two main eras, eras before Christ, after Christ. Why? Because what happened on that day so long ago in that barn in Bethlehem was not just another human birth. This was God himself breaking into human history to accomplish the greatest rescue operation that had ever been accomplished. Jesus, that tiny baby born to the Virgin Mary, was the eternally existent God become human. Who can even imagine the scope of that event? 
And so the question we ask this time of year is, why did God do this? Why did God stoop so low as to become one of the humans that he has made? And this morning, in search of one answer to that question, we turn today not to the gospel accounts of his birth, actually, but to the prophet Isaiah, who predicts this event so many hundreds of years before Jesus is actually born. Isaiah is given a gift. Isaiah is given a gift of foresight, a gift of seeing ahead what would come. And the main character in the plot that Isaiah described is someone who is called the servant of the Lord. There are actually four pretty commonly identified short poems or songs in the prophet Isaiah that have come to be known by many as the servant songs of Isaiah. One's in chapter 42, 1 to 7. Another one's this one, chapter 49, that we're looking at today. The third one is in chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. And the fourth one is the most well-known one, Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through chapter 53, about the suffering servant. And so today, we're going to look only at this second of these songs. But before we look at this song specifically, let's ask this question, our second question for this morning. Who really is the servant of the Lord? Because Isaiah uses this terminology here, the servant of the Lord. But it's not only Isaiah who uses this terminology. And we need to wrestle a little bit with who is the servant of the Lord in the context of the whole of Scripture. Let me make some observations looking at the big picture of the Bible here. Sometimes when biblical writers use this term, the servant of the Lord, they're talking, first of all, about the people of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. God chose Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and his family to be God's messengers to the whole world. And often as Biblical writers describe the people of Israel. Israel is called the servant of the Lord. They were commissioned. They were given a task to represent God to all the nations of the world. Sometimes they were effective. Most times they were not. Often they were disobedient servants. But this term, the servant of the Lord, doesn't always just refer to the nation as a whole, sometimes this term, the servant of the Lord, is used to refer to the leader of the people, the leader of the people. And sometimes that's the king, sometimes it's one of the prophets. The kings and prophets are sometimes referred to as servants of the Lord. And as we read through the various stories of these servants of the Lord, we find again that sometimes those servants are obedient and faithful and carry out the task that they've been given. And sometimes, quite frankly, they didn't do so well. But then, sometimes, this term, the servant of the Lord, really is used to refer to the promised Messiah, who is Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true human who comes into the world. And Isaiah is pointing us towards this Messiah, whom we now know to be Jesus, who was to come into the world as this true Israel and true human. He is the only one in history who lived without sin. He is the only one who perfectly carried out the mission that he had been given as the servant of the Lord. 
And much of the language that we read in these songs is really about this Messiah who carried out God's mission perfectly in the world. But the story doesn't end there because as we read now in the New Testament section of the Bible, what we discover is that that this term servant of the Lord can really be used to refer to you and me, the church. After Jesus lived and died and rose from, the be- rose from the dead, when he was about to leave the earth and return to his father, what did he do? He commissioned his followers. Yeah? He commissioned his followers to carry on the work that he had come to do. And so there's a very real servant sense in which you and I, too, are the servants of the Lord. I really want to emphasize that this, we can look at the whole story of the Bible in this terminology of the servant of the Lord. In fact, I would love it if you could see it as kind of a timeline of Scripture. From the beginning of the story of the Bible, Israel and Israel's leaders were seen as the sometimes frail servants of the Lord, right? That's the the beginning of the story. Right at the very center of the story of the Bible is the true and perfect and complete servant of the Lord who was Jesus, who comes to fulfill fulfill all of God's purposes perfectly. And now in our part of the story of the Bible, we too are called to be servants like Jesus. The story of the Bible is ultimately a story of the mission of God. The servant of the Lord is the one whom God calls to fulfill his mission, to be his workers in the world. It started with Israel. Jesus completely fulfills the task, and now he commissions us to be his servants, his representatives, to carry this completed message to the ends of the world. Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49, what Adam read for us. I want to make some observations of this text as we answer the question, how? How does God work through his servant? This is a very, very beautiful song here. Let's make three observations because that's what preachers do. They make three observations. First of all, the servant is called, equipped, and protected. Listen to the language of this song. The servant is called, equipped, and protected. First of all, called. In verse 1, Isaiah writes this, The Lord called me from the womb, from the, mo- from the body of my mother. He named my name. What beautiful language. Let's look at this language for a moment. This was true of Israel. We see it in the book of Deuteronomy, referring to the nation of Israel. God says to his people in the book of Deuteronomy, I chose you. You, my people, are my treasured possession. Right? This is God choosing, calling, choosing Israel as his own possession. But we need to also see it as fully true of Jesus, the true servant of the Lord. Before Jesus is even born, the angel says to Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But it wasn't just Israel, it wasn't just Jesus, it's also true of you and me. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, for you are God's handiwork. 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Israel was called, Jesus was called and named, and we too are called and named, and God has prepared the work for us to do. Us, as his servants, we're not only called, we're equipped and protected also. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 is such an amazing verse. It's really made up of four phrases. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. God equips his servant with a mouth to speak. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. And then the second one, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me, right? So he's made his servant with this, equipped him with this, this words to speak, but he's also protecting him, equipped and protected. Look at the third verse, the third phrase of this verse. He made me into a polished arrow, really a parallel of the first one. So this word is to be sent out like a polished arrow. And then the final phrase of this verse, in his quiver, he hid me away. You see the the pattern here? Equipped, protected. Equipped, protected. This is what God does for his servants. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, The word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The servant of the Lord is equipped to speak words that speak directly and forcefully to the brokenness and the problems that plague our world because of sin and selfishness and hatred and envy and murder and all kinds of things. The Word of God is, speaks so directly to all of those issues, and it comes from those who are equipped, called and equipped and protected by the servant, by God as, as his servants. The servant of the Lord is equipped to speak those words. The picture of the returning Messiah in the book of Revelation at the very end of the story of the Bible is the Son of Man coming, and there's this grand picture in the, in the language of the apocalypse of a, of a sharp sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. This will be the final word of judgment against sin and evil and injustice. Jesus, the one whom we celebrate as the baby born to Mary, is this servant of the Lord. His word is powerful and effective. He is protected by his father. Though he is attacked and beaten and killed, he is ultimately successful. The mission of God is carried forward fully and completely. Well, just for a moment, let's think of ourselves as servants of the Lord. We also have been commissioned. We also have been given a word to speak We are equipped in many different ways, and we speak and carry this word in many different ways according to the gifts and skills that God has given us. But we are all called to be messengers, witnesses, to carry this word of God to a world in which we live, which so desperately needs it. And we also are protected and kept in the hollow of his hand. So the first observation we make from this 
how does God use his servant? Well, the servant, God, first of all, calls and equips and protects his servant. Second observation from this song I want to notice is that the Lord also honors and commissions his servant. The Lord honors and commissions his servant. Jump down to verse 5. Verse 5 says this, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has become my strength. This is such beautiful language. Please notice, God always honors his servants. Even looking back a few chapters, if we think about Israel as a servant of the Lord, we saw, we, you can read in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 4, God speaking to his people Israel, and he says to them these amazing words, you are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. What amazing words to be spoken to the servant Israel who so often was unfaithful, so often went off and pursued worshiping other gods. And yet God says, you're precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. God honored his servant Israel, but God also honored his servant Jesus when Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, we read the story of, of how Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. The heavens opened and a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God honors Jesus, the servant of the Lord. But do you know also that as you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are his servant, and God also honors you. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is the amazing, the amazing continuation of the story that we also are servants of the Lord and God has honored us. But the Lord doesn't just honor his servant. He also commissions his servant. Look now at the language of commission. This is what the servant was to do. In verse 5, he says, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. We realize here that at the heart and, and at the very center of God's work in the world is a work of restoration, a work of rescue, a work of bringing humans back to himself who had strayed away and been separated because of sin. God's heart through the whole of Scripture, his main work, his mission is a mission of rescue, a mission of restoration. And here he is commissioning his servant to do this work of rec rescue and reconciliation. But notice carefully how the poem continues after verse 5 goes into verse 6. And notice what it says in this next phrase. Verse 6 says this, God says to his servant, 
it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations for my salvation, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Yeah, so this rescue is not just about restoring the people of Israel. It is so that God's message of rescue and restoration should go to the very ends of the earth. This is such a beautiful statement. From the very beginning of the story of Scripture to the end, we see clearly that God's heart was always that his salvation would reach to all the nations. In 2013, when I preached this message, it was at the International Church of Bishkek. And at this point in the, in the message, I wanted to do an illustration. And so I said, this gospel is reaching all the nations of the world. It's in the process of that. And just as by way of illustration, I had people stand up according to what continent in the world that they were from and what a beautiful thing it was to have people representing almost every continent in the world in that service of about 200 people. Such a beautiful thing to see so visually. God's message of salvation has gone and is going to all the nations of the world. Put up your hand if you were born outside of Canada in this room this morning. Yeah, this is a pretty strong international representation as well. God's work is going to all the nations of the world. It's such, such a beautiful thing. When Jesus left this earth following his death and resurrection, it's estimated that the number of followers were about 120 persons that were gathered around. Today, it seems the Church of Jesus numbers close to one billion people from certainly every continent in the world and many, many, many nations. There is still work to do. There are still peoples who are unreached with this message of rescue and redemption. But there is so much to praise God for. God honored and commissioned Jesus. Jesus has commissioned us and the light continues to spread around the world. The light that we lit this morning, the candle of light, this light of the gospel continues to radiate and spread from person to person, from family to family, from nation to nation. We might ask, why isn't the task complete already? Why hasn't Jesus already come back to do away with sin completely and complete this restoration? 2 Peter chapter 3 has become one of my, verse 9 is one of my favorite verses, where, Paul, where Peter says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is God's heart. And so we, as his servants, we continue to carry this light. And just as Jesus was honored, and, and Jesus, just as God honored and commissioned Jesus to be the light for all the nations, Jesus has now commissioned you and I to be that same light to all the nations. So, first, the servant is called, equipped, and protected. And secondly, the Lord honors and commissioned his servants, his servant and his servants. A final observation. 
the Lord displays his glory through his servant. Look at verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. I will be glorified. It was God's desire to show his glory to the world through his servant Israel. Sadly, as we read through the story of the Old Testament, we see so often how they turn away and they mess up and they worship other gods instead of worshiping the God who rescued them out of Egypt. But when Jesus comes, listen to what happened. These words come from the human person who is probably the closest to Jesus. And we here at Central have looked at this verse last week, last Wednesday. We looked at it again. But here it is. Here it is again. This is John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, making this dramatic, dramatic statement. The Word became flesh. God, eternal, became human and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. God reveals his glory through his servant. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This was God's splendor revealed in human form. But here's something even more remarkable. In what action does God most powerfully reveal his glory through Jesus? Where is God's glory most revealed? Was it perhaps through the calming of the storm? Was it perhaps through the healing of the sick? Was it perhaps him breaking the power of death and raising Lazarus back to life? No. Listen carefully to the prayer of Jesus. John chapter 17. This is Jesus talking with his father just before he went to the cross. John 17, verse 1 says this. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The hour of crucifixion. The hour has come. Glorify your Son. That your Son may glorify you. The moment of greatest glory for Jesus was the moment that looked like the greatest defeat. As Jesus hung on the cross in agony and seeming helplessness, he was accomplishing the greatest work of rescue and restoration in the history of the world. He was taking on himself your sin my sin so that we from every nation in the world could be restored to relationship with the God who made us. As a symbol that the way was being opened up for humans to have restored relationship with God, the veil in the temple was torn. In the place where God lived, the holy of holies, which no person could enter up to that point in the story, that place is suddenly opened up. And you and I have full access. The glory 
of the Lord has been revealed. And we have the beautiful privilege of entering in. This is God revealing his glory through the person of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2 Verse 24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.